This morning we are moving into the last quarter of the book of Acts. And we could call this section of the book Christianity on Trial. There are 28 chapters in the whole book. And these last seven chapters, we find the Apostle Paul giving a series of defenses of the faith. From now till the end of the book, Paul will be under arrest. And as a prisoner, he will appear before crowds, councils, and rulers of various kinds, making the case for Christianity. And these are important chapters for us to listen to today, because we live in a time when there is a lot of confusion about Christianity. Is it a political movement? Is it a movement to preserve certain traditions? Is it a sinister campaign to undermine people's freedom? Those questions are being asked about Christianity today. And similar questions were being asked in Paul's day. So Paul's answers are helpful to us as Christians today. Turn with me to the end of Acts chapter 21. In the Church Bible, that's page 1119. We'll be picking up at the end of chapter 21, where we left off last week. This morning, we're going to look at Paul's speech to an angry crowd, first of all, before the, outside the Roman barracks. And then we'll look at his speech to an almost equally angry Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. Last week we ended with Paul being arrested outside the temple in Jerusalem. He was arrested by the Romans while the Jewish crowd was trying to beat him to death. And now in front of the Roman commander and the angry crowd, Paul announces that Christianity is not a political movement. It is God working. Let me introduce this by saying that as Christians, there are times when the government moves to make laws that we believe are harmful. And so we organize petitions and sometimes protests. In other words, we get involved in politics. And there is a place for that. There's a place for signing petitions and going and talking to our MPs. But even as we do those things, we must never forget Christianity is not a political movement. Remember where we are here in Acts. Over two decades have passed since the opening chapters of the book. Christianity has been growing and spreading for over two decades. And now the Romans are trying to figure out exactly what this movement is all about. We can see that here in the Roman commander. The passage we'll look at next week tells us his name is Claudius Lysias. And now he wants to get to the bottom of who Paul is and what Paul represents. So look with me at chapter 21, verse 37. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? 
Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he spoke to them in Aramaic. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high priest and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters for them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. The Roman commander is surprised that Paul turns and speaks to him in Greek. That wasn't the language normally spoken in Jerusalem. And that sparks off an idea in the commander's head, Claudius's head. Greek was a common language down in Egypt. And for three years, an Egyptian had been top of the Romans' most wanted list. The ancient historian Josephus tells us that about three years before this, an Egyptian terrorist, literally the word means dagger man, had led a revolt against Rome. And then he had escaped the Romans. He'd gone missing just outside Jerusalem. And when Claudius realizes this man he's just hauled out of a riot is a Greek speaker, he wonders if he's caught this Egyptian. Now, I don't know if this would have been on the same level as catching Osama bin Laden, but it would have done wonders for Claudius' career. But Paul says, no, sorry to disappoint you. I'm no Egyptian dagger man. I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia. In other words, I'm from the opposite end of the map to Egypt. And then Paul switches languages. He addresses the crowd in Aramaic, which was the normal language of Jerusalem. And having reassured Claudius that he's not anti-Roman, Paul now tries to reassure the Jewish crowd that he's not anti-Jewish. And the fact is, not many people could match his Jewish credentials. He explains that he was educated by Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the most respected Jewish teacher of that time. Paul was as much of an insider as you could be in Judaism. In verse 3 he says, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. And at that point in his life, Paul was political. Throughout Acts, Christianity has been referred to as the way. That seems to stand for the way to God. And when Paul first encountered followers of the way, he tried to crush them. And to do that, he made use of all the political channels that were at his disposal. So as Paul stands in front of this angry crowd, he says to them, there was a time when I was where you are. I was using politics and force to try and achieve what I wanted. 
Actually, I was like that Egyptian terrorist you mistook me for, Claudius. But then everything changed for me. God intervened in my life. Look how Paul goes on in verse 6. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. It's important to notice here, Paul is not having some vague, dreamy experience of the divine. He's not encountering some mystical force or power. No, Paul falls to the ground in front of a person, the risen Jesus of Nazareth, a specific person from a specific place. Christianity is about God working through the person of Jesus Christ. When Paul became a Christian, he was not joining a political party or a pressure group. He wasn't joining a club or a society to try and clean up the community. He became a Christian by meeting a person, Jesus of Nazareth. And becoming a Christian meant becoming a follower of Jesus. Why is this important? It's important because there's always the temptation for us to try and gather people around a cause. It might be the save traditional marriage cause or the treat the poor more fairly cause or the get Britain's teenagers on the right track cause. And those are all good causes. Christianity has plenty to say about all those issues. Christianity has wisdom for tackling those issues. But let's never forget, Christianity is not about joining a cause. It's about meeting a person and having our lives changed through meeting that person. History shows us that the church of Jesus Christ loses its way when it forgets this. And in fact, the church ceases to be much help to society when it forgets this. That's the irony. When we forget that Christianity is all about Jesus, we become just another group offering a human solution to people's problems. But what people need most of all is to meet the risen Lord Jesus. They might not realize that's what they need, but it is. Men and women's biggest problem is God. The fact that he is their enemy because they are rebels against him. The only solution to the problem is to meet and put their trust in the one who died in the place of rebels and the one who rose to be the living savior of rebels, the one who reconciles rebels to God. Whatever else we as Christians might be about, we have to remember that first and foremost, 
Christianity is about leading men, women, and children to meet Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean we ignore their other problems. It means we give their greatest problem our greatest attention. Paul goes on in verse 12. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Notice how Paul is careful to point out that Ananias was a devout Jew. Paul wants to show that Christianity is not something that appeared from nowhere. It's actually the fulfillment of everything the Jewish scriptures pointed to. And when Ananias speaks to Paul, he refers to God as the God of our fathers. He calls Jesus the righteous one. That's a title that was used by the Old Testament prophets. Through the prophets, God promised to send someone to make sinful men and women right with him. Only a person who was himself right with God could make others right with him or righteous. The first Christians understood that Jesus was the person who would do that. He is the righteous one God had promised. So Christianity is about God working through the person of Jesus Christ to fulfill his ancient promises. And notice how he does it. By changing individual lives. Ananias says to Paul in verse 14, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. God has taken the initiative. And now Paul needs to respond in verse 16. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Calling on the name of Jesus is another way of saying, put your trust in Jesus. When a man or woman does that, their sins are washed away. They're forgiven and forgotten by God. And then in baptism, the person testifies publicly to what God has done for them. What Paul is describing here cannot be confused with a political movement. This is about God breaking into human lives and making men and women right with him on the basis of what Jesus did on the cross. And once God has broken into a life, things do not go on as before. That man or woman then becomes a witness to the good news of what God has done in Jesus. Look down to verse 21. Paul explains that as he was praying, God said to him, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Christianity is about God working through the person of Jesus Christ to fulfill his ancient promises 
By changing individual lives and sending them out with good news for all peoples. Christianity is not a Jewish religion. It's not a white European religion. It's not a middle class religion. It's good news for all peoples and all kinds of people. Now, if it's true that Christians can forget what they're about sometimes, it's also true that we can be badly misunderstood. That's apparently what the Roman commander does here. Remember, Paul has been speaking to the crowd in Aramaic. It's quite likely that being a Roman, Claudius Lysias doesn't understand Aramaic. And so when the crowd go ballistic at Paul, as they're about to do, Claudius assumes Paul is the one who needs to be punished. Look at verse 22. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. In other words, until he mentioned that God was sending him to the Gentiles. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. Christians are often accused of being narrow-minded. But on this occasion, it's the crowd who are narrow-minded. When Paul says Israel's God has good news for the Gentiles, the crowd want Paul killed. This is not the first or the last time the good news about Jesus has been seen as a threat. We've noticed this before in Acts. Sometimes people feel the good news is a threat to their cherished way of life. And they get very angry about it. And here Paul is being viewed as the one who's the troublemaker and the one who's out of line. Verse 25. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. According to the ancient writer Cicero, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. It's no wonder the Roman commander is alarmed here. He is guilty of a serious crime. Now, presumably, Paul is able to prove he's a citizen by showing his diploma of citizenship. The diploma was made of two small pieces of wood hinged in the middle like a book. It was inscribed with writing, and it was both a birth and citizenship certificate. And Claudius says to Paul, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. What he means is, I had to hand over a big bribe. Officially, Roman citizenship was not for sale. 
Anyone who got it by paying for it had got it illegally. And Claudius is trying to make himself feel better by fishing here to see if Paul had paid for his too. But Paul came by his citizenship legally. So look at this picture again. Paul has been arrested and he is about to be flogged or he was about to be flogged as a threat to the peace. But it's the crowd who are the prejudiced ones. And they're the ones who turn violent. And the Roman commander is found to be the one who got his position through dishonesty. What is Luke showing us here? He's showing us that Christianity is no threat to society. Genuine Christians like Paul do not make their way in life through dishonest means. They are not corrupt. And they do not endanger the well-being of society. And yet they're often treated like they are a danger. We get glimpses of this being replayed today. In a society that prides itself in being tolerant, sometimes it seems the only voices not to be tolerated are Christian ones. Let me just give you one example. Several years ago, the cooperative bank closed down the accounts of an organization called Christian Voice. What was the reason? Well, the co-op said the views of Christian Voice were incompatible with the position of the bank. Why? Well, because the Christian view of appropriate sexual behavior, they said, was discriminatory. And, they said, the cooperative bank prides itself in supporting diversity and dignity in all its forms for our staff and customers. So, in the name of supporting diversity among its customers, the bank cut off one of its diverse customers, Christian Voice. We have to ask, which attitude is the true threat to society here? Is it the attitude that says, as Christians, we are going to be honest about sin, and at the same time, we are going to love sinners? We're going to hold out the offer of salvation from sin through Jesus Christ. Is that a threat to society? Or is the true threat the attitude that says, we will tolerate you so long as you agree with us and our view of the world. But if you dare to hold a different view, we will marginalize you and we will discriminate against you. There are always going to be parts of the Christian message that society doesn't like. But Christianity is never a threat to society. It holds the key to the healing of our society. Society is really in trouble when in the name of tolerance and diversity, opposing points of view are silenced and labeled as bigoted. Well, Paul has proved here that he's not the prejudiced one. He's proved that he's not the one using dishonest tactics. But he's not allowed to go free. Look at verse 30. 
The next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him. And presumably here that means released him from his chains. And ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, You dare to insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Sincere apologies do not happen very often today, especially among public figures. But a sincere apology is what we get here from Paul. In verse 1, he's continuing the line of his speech to the crowd. He wants to assure these Jewish leaders that he's not a loose cannon. He's not a maverick out doing his own thing. No, he's serving God. I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience. We could translate that, I have lived as a good citizen unto God. Ananias, the high priest, disagrees with that, and he orders Paul to be hit for saying it. And in return, it seems here that Paul loses his temper. What he says is correct. He calls Ananias a whitewashed wall. That's an insult that's taken from the Old Testament. Paul is accusing Ananias of hypocrisy. He appears whiter than white. He's claiming to uphold the law. But according to that law, Paul is supposed to be presumed innocent until he's proved guilty. So what Paul says to Ananias is true. But then Paul apologizes for saying it. And the reason is that he didn't realize he was talking to the high priest. When that is pointed out to him, Paul then quotes the law against himself. Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Some people have wondered how Paul could have failed to recognize the high priest. Well, there are several reasonable explanations. I think the most likely one is that since this was a meeting called at short notice by the Roman commander, Ananias probably wasn't wearing his distinctive high priestly robes. And if we remember that Paul has been out of the loop in Jerusalem for over two decades at this point, then it is very possible he didn't know Ananias had been appointed high priest. When a new pope is appointed in Rome, we get the news reported to us live. But in the first century, news about Jewish appointments in Jerusalem may never have made its way to Gentile cities, especially hundreds of miles away. And even if the news did get there, it certainly wouldn't have been up-to-date news. But the point here is that even though he didn't know the position Ananias held, Paul still acknowledges that he has stepped out of line. Paul wants to be respectful, 
even to those who disagree with him and persecute him. Paul is showing everyone who's watching, including the Roman commander, that Christianity is not a threat to society. And then Paul takes the opportunity to point to the hope that's at the heart of Christianity. Verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously, we find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Christianity is not a threat to society. It has a message of hope, backed up by a faithful God. Paul knows that his opponents are actually divided among themselves here. They may have a united front, but behind the front there are major cracks. Apparently, historically, the Sadducees believed either that death brought a complete end or that spirits lived on in a shadowy underworld forever. Either way, that was very different from the Pharisees' view. Through the Old Testament prophet Daniel, God had promised a day when multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. The Pharisees believed that. And they were waiting for that resurrection. So Paul knows he has some common ground with the Pharisees here on the council. And he wants them to know that Christianity is the way to make their hope for the future a sure and certain hope. Christians don't have a vague hope that things will somehow turn out well, if we're good enough. No, through faith in Jesus, Christians live with confidence that we will be raised to everlasting life. Not because of what we have done or what we hope to do, but because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Paul does end up getting some support from the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. But it doesn't result in him being released. It results in him nearly getting torn to pieces. Once again, Paul is not the threat. It's the reactions of his opponents that are causing the problem. But Paul ends up back in prison. And that's where he's going to be until the end of Acts. Yes, he will travel to Rome, but he will travel as a prisoner. There are not going to be any miraculous escapes for Paul. God can do that. 
He has done it for Paul in the past, but he doesn't always do it. And when he doesn't do it, it is not because Paul doesn't have enough faith. It's because it's not part of God's purposes to release Paul. We mustn't think the Christian life is all about miracles. That was not the case for Paul. He will spend the next number of years chained up. Not because of a lack of faith. Not because of some sin in his life. He is chained up and he will stay chained up because that's the way God has chosen to further his purposes and advance his kingdom through Paul. At this point in Paul's life, God ministers to Paul not by providing miraculously opening doors, but by standing near him and reassuring him. Take courage. God shows his faithfulness and power in Paul's life not by rescuing him from prison, but by sustaining him in prison. And that may be the way God will show his faithfulness and power in your life. He may not miraculously heal your illness. He may not take away those fears that are troubling your mind. He may not magically smooth away the difficulties in your marriage. He may not deliver your dream job or even any job at all. He may not show his faithfulness and power by doing any of those things for you. But he will show his faithfulness and power. If God leaves the trouble in your life, then he will stand near you and sustain you in the trouble. He will say to you, take courage. I have not abandoned you. I am with you. And I will enable you to testify about me even in your trouble. Sometimes our greatest witness for Jesus comes as we testify to his faithfulness not in lifting us out of difficulty, but in sustaining us through difficulty. It may be that Christianity is on trial in the eyes of the world around us, but our God will always pass the test. Those who put their hope in Christ will never be put to shame, they will never be disappointed. Our God is a faithful God. Let's praise him as we sing all the way, my Savior leads me. And then there is a higher throne.